0: This is AM Rush Sports. I'm your host, Alex Mitchell. And why not join the first blizzard, technically nor'easter, of the season with me and AM New York Sports Editor, Joe Pantorno. We've got Snow Day Sports coming up. We're going to talk about everything going on. The Giants, while it's fading, still have a shot to win the division and make the playoffs. Are the Jets really tanking for Trevor Lawrence? We're going to talk about that, too. And we've got loads about everything going on in the New York sports world. Let's get right into it. Joe, we're going to you now. Joe, it is snowing. What a time to do a Snow Day Sports podcast. Now, the New York Giants are playing one of its most important games In very recent memory, when I say recent, going back to probably Ben McAdoo, the last time they made the playoffs, which was the 2015-2016 season, Sunday night they face the Cleveland Browns in what really is a must-win game. And even though things didn't go so well against Arizona, there's still a playoff hype in December for the New York Giants, which seemed astronomically impossible compared to what was going on in the fall. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty wild that they're in this situation. And, uh, you know, again, it's, we're chalking it up to just how bad the NFC East is under normal circumstances. They would be nowhere near sniffing a playoff spot, but here they are. And uh, the NFC East was so volatile that you have a string of good luck like they did, uh, you know, for four weeks. Uh, you know, you, you reel off a four-game winning streak, and all of a sudden you're on top of the division uh, in in the snap of uh, in the snap of your fingers. So, uh, pretty wild. Um, you know, they they did not look good against the Cardinals. We all saw that. It was uh, it was a pretty ugly game, and there are issues now again surrounding their starting quarterback and a very difficult primetime test that's coming up against the Cleveland Browns. Who, I guess, you know, it, it's a bit of a reprieve, and not that you ever root for. Injuries that Odell Beckham Jr. isn't going to be playing because he's out for the season, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, this still, this is still Odell Beckham Jr.'s Browns, and obviously, he's going to be vested in this game a lot. And uh, you know, he he still feels a certain type of way that the Giants traded him away in the first place, so uh, there there will be vindication regardless if the Browns do beat the Giants in prime time, and uh, you know, they're the favorites to do so. They're nine and four. They're having their uh, their best season since the franchise was rebooted um so you know what it's uh this is a traditional classic nfl matchup on a sunday night and you know one team is deservedly in the playoff hunt while the other one well not so much but it's a must win and meaningful december football for new york city area football fans is uh it's a very welcome distraction right now because uh, they haven't really experienced this in quite a while
0: No, no, they haven't. And uh, two head coaches later, it would take some circumstances, but the Giants could finish the job. And they have to finish the job strong in order to make the playoffs. They need to probably win out the season, maybe get some help by the Washington football team, who is now the division leader. But let's go back to Daniel Jones for a second, because this is something we talked about over the weekend as the game was going on. And he just looked like a fish out of water, deer in headlights, whatever your your analogy is for it. He just looked like he was not ready for that game after taking a few weeks off, recovering from a hamstring hamstring injury. And this is something I said to you where it, it felt like, why did you rush him back for this? He He was not a valuable force in that game he's and then he ends up re-injuring himself it, it just kind of felt like especially after a backup quarterback Colt McCoy who the Giants are going to put out against Cleveland this Sunday he crushed it against Seattle the week before so you knew that he could play in big games maybe he wouldn't have a, a second miracle performance but you knew that he could step up and do the job and be the team's starting quarterback so it, it really, to me, I, I felt like that was on the coaches, why Daniel Jones didn't perform well, because and and the fact that he did re-hurt himself, not even all the way into the fourth quarter, but I believe it was into the, the early half or into the early start of the second half when Daniel Jones goes down with another injury. That means he wasn't ready to come back. That's an indicator that this was a departmental call that, cost the team their starting quarterback yet again and inadvertently probably cost them a win possibly maybe I'm speculating there a little bit but it certainly cost them being competitive in the game not going to your healthy quarterback your healthy backup quarterback rather who proved his competency the week before in what was really the biggest upset for the New York Giants Joe I'm gonna say since Ben McAdoo's squad in 2015.
1: Yeah, um, and and such a big part of Daniel Jones' game is predicated on his mobility. Um, And when you are facing a team that has such an aggressive pass rush like the Arizona Cardinals have, like what we saw on Sunday, um, it's imperative that he is or that he should have been at 100% because you're throwing him into the fire there. And as you can tell, this was a mobile quarterback who was put under these circumstances – in a newfound immobility. Um, And you saw his internal clock was horrifically off. Um, He had no time in the pocket as it was. The offensive line was an absolute sieve around him. Um, But normally when those instincts kicked in, his legs were able to start moving and at least extend the play for another, at least another second or two. But again, we saw that that wasn't the case and you could tell that something was seriously wrong. And in the second quarter, it turns out that he sprained his ankle. So now he's dealing with a hamstring problem in one leg. Then the other leg leg, he's dealing with a sprained ankle now. So yeah. Um it's it's a difficult situation because I think there wouldn't have been much of a difference if Colt McCoy was put in. We saw what he did through the final minutes of the fourth quarter, and it was it was much of the same result. He's not as athletic as Daniel Jones, he's not as mobile. Obviously, the play calling would have been catered a little bit differently for him, um, but in that same breath, you know, he was sacked twice in, in five minutes of play. Um, so I really think this was just a situation um, where the uh, where the Giants were just out, outcoached, they were outclassed, and at the end of the day, it's an enormous learning experience, not only for the players who understand that they're not invincible after that four-game winning streak, but it's also a learning experience for Joe Judge, knowing that, hey, I was completely outcoached. And the rest of the staff, too. So, um, again, the Giants were expected to be nowhere near this point uh, this year, especially this time of year, playing meaningful, meaningful games in December. And I think at the end of the day, that needs to be realized because this is basically a bonus. The Giants are kind of playing with house money here because the NFC, is le- NFC East is letting them play these meaningful games they really have no business to be playing in. On paper, they're not a good football team. Their general manager has done nothing to really build them into a contender. Um, There's still a ton of holes within this roster, Um, but you have a defensive coordinator who is really making this defense perform out of its mind. Um, So it's, you know, again, it's it's just a question of, you know, will the will the chips kind of fall around the Giants in the right place that'll let them back into the playoffs in a way? Um, so, again, you know, to me, I think this is a valuable learning experience for them. Um, it's already teaching some of these young players who are going to be a part of the franchise moving forward uh, how to play in these meaningful December games. And, um, yeah, you know, we'll see what the Giants can do with Colt McCoy. Uh, they even said if Daniel Jones is able to go, Um, just keep an eye out for McCoy anyway. They actually might try and put him in uh, certain situations and packages, uh, even if Jones is ready to go or at least gets the okay to go. And we know Daniel Jones is a tough kid. You know he's going to try and tough it out anyway. So, um, yeah, it's a lot going on here. And it's a question of whether or not, you know, these young kids and Joe Judge can kind of lick their wounds and, you know, get back up and dust themselves off.
0: Now, as someone who has covered the New York Yankees for a sixty-game season, I've seen firsthand what recurring, lingering injuries can do to a team. Now, obviously, football is a different sport. There's much more condition to not just contact, but brutal collisions, as the Arizona Cardinals defense kindly let daniel jones uh know about but he already has two lower body injuries in what a three-week span this this is how problems arise this is how surgeries come this is how quarterbacks in their youth in their prime get ruined is when you rush them back is yeah. when you try to just try to force him in, like, oh, okay, he wasn't limping at practice. Okay, go out and get him, Tiger. I would be very concerned to see Daniel Jones starting against Cleveland. I, I think that that is a massive red flag on judges' judgment if he's going to put him back in without some extreme knowledge of Jones's miraculous health coming back all at once because he's still, as you said, he's still fighting the hamstring in addition to what's going on now with his ankle. So now the Cleveland defense has not one, but two targets when they sack him. So I think that this is a Colt McCoy game without a doubt. And as I said, it's concerning if the giants take it, in another way now to go to the last nfc east team to win the super bowl colt mccoy for the rest of the season is going to have to pull nick Foles. he's going to have to be the new guy and maybe he can't like you said fourth quarter he got demolished but i i do think that if he were starting that game with a blank slate maybe they wouldn't have won but i i think he would have shown a little bit more of what he was capable of rather than jumping into a game, playing catch up with a very gassed offensive line. But uh, again, you're right. He, he's not a starter, but he is now a role player for the giants and he's going to have to come together. They're going to have to get creative with their play calling. And you know, you got to remember, this is a giant squad who already lost Saquon Barkley at the beginning of the season. And then you see the, re-rise of Wayne Gallman, because you've seen this before. You've seen his ability to run in seasons past. And I appreciate in him that he's able to just buck up, take the call when it comes, and not sit all pouty on the sideline when his number's not being called behind Barkley. Now he gets his opportunity to come and step up again, like he did a few seasons ago with the Giants. And he's taking it in stride. You would see plays where he's expected to lose yards and he makes it a three-yard game. When the defense is already in the backfield before he gets the ball and he can still somehow lunge his body out and make some positive yardage of it. You know, it's almost like a miniature version of Brandon Jacobs. That's, that's what it kind of feels like in a way. Yeah. So obviously, Gallman's going to be a big factor going into Sunday. McCoy's ability to probably... Just get the ball off quickly. Not not go deep, but just, just be able to connect, make passes under an aggressive amount of time, probably three to four seconds. Not the average time a quarterback should have in the pocket, but that's what the Giants are working with here. And like you said, since they have some house money, why can't they go and beat the casino now? Sure. That, that's the exciting thing. And you look at the last time, it, it wasn't as bad, but the last time the Giants won the Super Bowl, nine and seven. That can't be achieved this year, but it it has that 2011 feeling to it. Although there is one difference that I was thinking of when I was watching against the Arizona Cardinals last week, and that was in 2011. I believe it was week 15 when the Giants were playing the Cowboys in Texas. JPP with the, you know, he blocks the field goal at the end of the game and the Giants win, and that was, kind of the emotional turning point for that team where it's like wow they can do this they can finish strong and of course it it went down to the wire with a rematch to the Cowboys that New Year's Day I believe or the day after New Year's Day but this season has almost the flip effect to it with that Arizona game where instead of riding the high momentum of what could have been a five-game win streak you take not a commanding lead but a a pretty reliable hold in the division. Now, now it's inverted and that's what concerns me. And that's what I think differentiates these giants from kind of the last uh, dare, I call them misfits, but the last ragtag unexpected group of champions is that they've already lost their, their opportunity. So we'll see what they're made of. We'll see what Joe Judge is made of. And like you said, since they have this house money, since they have almost this freebie, we get a sneak peek at what he's going to be like when the division comes down to a game or so in December. And he's doing it with his hand tied behind his back in losing his starting quarterback and losing his starting running back and in a general manager that you could argue has not invested in the team's needs properly. So this is almost more than them making the playoffs this season. I think we're really getting a glimpse at what the immediate Giants' future is going to look like in these next three games. And I don't know. To me, and you tell me, I'll I'll let you go. I've been going for a little bit on this. But it feels like, to Judge's credit, week by week, he's turned a team into a family. And and I, I just, I feel that when I watch the games that every week these guys are getting to know each other and they're playing not for themselves, but for each other. And there is a common goal and they realize that they are better than they look on the field and that they want to show it now. That's the impression I'm getting not to make it sound like a Disney movie, but, but it really feels like week by week, win or lose, they're becoming a unit.
1: You saw even when the Giants started the season, 1-5, 1-6, whatever it was, uh, you know, 1-7, um, you saw progressively week by week that this was a team that was slowly getting better. And you saw that even in these losses, this was a team that was competing. I hadn't seen a Giants team that played with that much fire for their coach and their coaching staff. For years, since Tom Coughlin, since was there. Coughlin, I saw a Giants team in 2015 win 10 or 11 games, and they did not have this kind of fire under Ben McAdoo that no, they a, didn't that a five and eight team has with Joe Judge.
0: No, they just went to Miami before the playoffs.
1: Exactly. So it's again, this is all part of the process. And going into this season, I put the Giants down as a four and twelve football team. I did. Not far uh, off, right, and at this point, I'm still not far off, and they're still in playoff contention, which again, it's unreal, and the NFL has to do something about this, by the way, but again, that's another conversation for another day. Uh, but it's it's just something that Giants fans can kind of hang their hat on where if things do go south this year, they can at least take solace in knowing that, okay. We have the right guy at head coach. Uh, we have the guy that his players are going to run through brick walls for him. Um, you know, and, and who knows if that's the case for the rest of the coaching staff. But let me tell you, Patrick Graham is, I would be shocked if he stays for more than three or four years as Giants defensive coordinator, because that guy's going to be a head coach. Um, and he's already making waves. And again, this is a 5-8 and eight football team. And, you know, there were editorials galore about this guy, how he's transforming a Giants defense, where really, this is this is a pretty no-name defense. You know, you have Leonard Williams and James Bradbury, and Jabril Peppers, but what else do you have? You know, this, this is a bunch of, you know, never-will-be's or we're never even on the radar. So, um, again, this is just, it, it's all a part of this process, and it, it's Listen, Dave Gettleman has not gotten a lot right. Um, I think everybody can agree on that. But he got this right with bringing Joe Judge on. He has the right guy at head coach. You have that centerpiece. If Daniel Jones can maybe figure out how to not turn the ball over so much, if he's able to improve on his pocket presence, well, again, you know what? You might have a franchise quarterback. You might. I'd say it's 50-50 right now at best. Well, Uh, who does he remind you of? Uh, it rhymes with <laughs> Manning, you know it's just it, Eli Manning had an incredibly slow start and again the, that Giants team was not a good team his rookie year when he made his debut in the year after they, they were not good football teams um, but again all of a sudden now with the reemergence of Wayne Gallman you have a legitimate and again under the right coaching you have a legitimate two-headed run, Russian attack you have Thunder and Lightning Part 3, you know. Yeah. It was Barber. Then it was Brandon Jacobson, Ahmad Bradshaw. And now it's Saquon Barkley and, and Wayne Gallman, where, you know, Saquon Barkley is the finesse, agile, deke out-of-your-pants kind of running back, and Wayne Gallman is just, all right, you know what, I'm going to run this ball down your throat. And whenever you give me the ball, I'm going to pick up at least three or four yards of carry. Um, and that's what the Giants need. And that takes that much pressure off Saquon Barkley. So these are all things – that they can, you know, build on for the future. The offensive line is improving. The secondary is, I think, ahead of schedule. Really, James Bradbury is a pro bowler. Jarnay Holmes is becoming a, a pretty reliable option, too. So, again, these are all things that, all right, you know what? The Giants aren't a playoff team. You put them in any other division of football, they're not a playoff team. Oh, of course not. But if they are in that situation where, all right, they're five and 5-8, they're out of it, this season's over, it's, well, you know what? well, this team could be something in a year or two if, you know, the general manager can do X, Y, and Z right. And that's asking a lot of Dave Gettleman. It is. He has not done to uh, kind of instill that sort of confidence. But at the same time, the Giants are closer than I think a lot of us thought they were at the beginning of this season.
0: And again, taking into account, uh, of course, it's always easy to play armchair and coulda, woulda, shoulda, but you know, imagine if Barkley was healthy this year. It, you know, it, it, you sound like John Lennon when you say, imagine this, imagine that. Imagine Jones doesn't go down, but even still, besides that last game, you know, McCoy rose to the occasion. That was exciting to see. I think next year, it maybe they need – I don't know. What, what do you think the Giants should pursue in the draft in the offseason? That's a good question. Um, Exactly, because it's like everything's already there. You just got to develop it. That's what I feel. Maybe some more protection. I feel like it's like saying the Yankees need pitching. You know, it's synonymous. The Giants need an offensive line. Maybe, again, you pursue a good lineman, some guys to help sustain that pocket, and also get some run protection because with Barkley coming back, you want to give the guy a little time. You don't want him getting lit up in the backfield every play. Kind of like what we're saying about Daniel Jones coming off an ACL. And I've seen how those things can just, you slip the wrong way. All of a sudden, boom, it's gone again. So I think maybe just more line protection, everything else you just want to develop because the pieces are already there.
1: Yeah. And and you're right. It's, the, the Giants' offensive line is so banding because they'll come out and they'll have a great game like they did against Seattle, who, again, it's you have to know, that's the worst defense in football. Uh, so, you know, it's, well, the offensive line looked good, but it comes with a grain of salt. But they had, they had been improving. But then again, they'll come out against Arizona, and Andrew Thomas will get absolutely lit up all day long. And that, that's the number four pick of the draft. That's your – that's your first-round rookie tackle that's just getting taken to the woodshed all day. And he's been inconsistent this year. He, was, he had a really rough start. He was benched. He comes back. He improves. And then he has a game like that. Um, so, obviously, you're going to want that consistency. And you can say, hey, you know what, this is still going to be the guy. But also, at the end of the day, in the back of your mind, the Giants had how many other options? They, had, they could have taken Mekhi Beckton. They could have taken Tristan Wirfs. There were other options on the table here. So, we could be looking at this draft in three or four years and be like, you know what, the one thing that's really missing with the Giants is, you know, that true, uh, you know, offensive tackle. That Sean always,
0: O'Hara you know, or David Deal. You know, the exactly. the line of steel from the Super Bowl
1: years. Yes, exactly. So, you know, you look, listen, the Jets got a stud infected. He was there for the Giants' taking. They and they slept it. on it. Right. Worse? The stud, same thing. Just didn't take it. Now it's you know what? Maybe they just like Andrew Thomas more and it's so early. And I the one thing I hate about the NFL is all it takes is two weeks to create a narrative. Or, you know, it takes a year to create the narrative. We're running Sam Darnold out of town. Daniel Jones doesn't look like the Giants franchise quarterback. You go back to the beginning of November, everybody's riding Daniel Jones off. All of a sudden they win three games in a row and boom, oh, Daniel Jones is- Fiddle Jones is the guy. And then he gets hurt. And it's, oh, the giant season's over. So it's, everybody's just got to calm down. Listen, I know. It's only a 16-game season. I get that. These seasons go quick. But at the same time, you can't flip-flop week to week. And and especially when it comes to a guy like Andrew Thomas, yeah, he's going to have a rough first year. But you give him a full off season with the coaching, hopefully under no COVID protocols, where things are a little bit more normal, who knows? So it's just the book is still out on it, obviously. And, you know, again, who knows? We might be saying at the draft that, all right, well, it's clear that the Giants need an offensive lineman. You know, they have a top ten pick because they didn't win the division. You know, so, again, it could be there for the taking. But, you know, it, your guess is as good as mine at this point because it's so hard to, you know, to, to judge these talents so early. But, you know, it's it's tough. It is. It,
0: you're right. And, you know, I think I think in football, maybe next to, and I say this with love to my Yankees following, uh, next to New York Yankees fans, football you get the most fair weatheredness. And the most, the second there's a slight cloud in the sky, you're thinking deluge, or in our case, a nor'easter, what's happening right now. Maybe Thomas is the guy... He's a rookie. He needs time to develop. Maybe he was just nervous. Maybe he's hurt, and the team goes to him. It's minor, you know. Can you tough it out for us? Who knows? But the other thing is, whenever I saw the mistakes Andrew Thomas was making, I just thought of uh, one floral oh. offensive lineman. That yeah, yeah.
1: Say that.
0: I'm, i he yeah. has to be mentioned.
1: Because, yeah.
0: It's uh, We're referring to Eric Flowers Who after much criticism online Actually made his Twitter private He could protect his tweets But not his quarterback um, So the last time the Giants Invested in A first round offensive lineman Clearly it didn't pan out And when you see these kind of mistakes You, you can't help but get a flashback And you're like what? No, not again, not again and it almost makes you concerned if they're going to draft another one because it's like, well, you struck out on the last two. What what makes this one so different? But I don't know. You know what? Thomas has not made any cardinal sins yet. No pun intended against Arizona, but he, he has not he has not cost the Giants a game single handedly. And until he does, I think it's really unfair to to put him on the chopping block as he's not going to pan out. Well, he's a rookie offensive lineman. There shouldn't be that much attention to him anyway under a normal, successful football club. So for him to be microanalyzed says more about the organization than it does about his individual performance. Let the kid grow. Let the kid have another opportunity. You know, the other thing about coming in as a rookie, and, and I really think that this is something that should be considered more. These guys don't really get a chance to train in the off season as professional athletes and that's why you see a huge a huge difference in year 1 and year 2 in a lot of athletes and this goes for any sport is that they're in the pro weight room they're training with all stars the best people at their sport they're now training with and now they're now working with and literally working out with so i think if andrew thomas gets in a conditioning and and maybe just a um you know more of a diligence program with just just not jumping off, not off sides, you know, with false starts and everything. I think that could be what he needs is, you know, the mental maturity and the physical progression, which he's going to get in the Giants. Very, very nice training facility, which, and not, not to bash any NCAA school, there's just a difference between college and pro. And there's more individualized attention. Now he can work with his own guys. And I'm sure also to his defense, coming into this season – Under COVID protocol, I'm sure that he did not progress himself as much as he possibly could have, bridging the gap between college and professional. So let's give him a fair shot. Let's give him a real offseason. Let's see what he can do. Hey, let's give him Sunday night. You know, let's hope he turns into the great wall of China out there. That goes for the entire Giants offensive line. When they have a game like that, I hope that there's a conversation with Jason Garrett. I hope there's a conversation with Joe Judge where you're not coming down hard on them but you're saying this next game you guys got to be an unstoppable force without a doubt. So, and again, when you look at what we're talking about is the Giants playing together as a unit, improving every game. If that trend is to continue, you know what? You're going to have Colt McCoy sign virtual autographs out there he'll have so much time with the ball that that's what you're hoping for that's what you want to see and I think the Giants mission right now playoffs or no playoffs is win out win your next three games I would even if they don't make the playoffs I would call that a successful season would you
1: yeah yeah absolutely and it's again, way, way ahead of schedule um you know I think I saw the most optimistic of predictions surrounding this team at like six and 10 or seven and nine. I don't think there was a soul out there that tabbed the Giants as a, you know, team that was in legitimate playoff contention. So it's, you know, it's, uh, I, I I think this year already, I would, under, under these circumstances, uh, I would say this year is already a win. Um, and you know, you want to see more from Daniel Jones, I think, obviously, um, there's now a built-in excuse with his injuries. Um, those turnover problems are obviously enormous. Um, so, you know, it, 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 I think that's the one thing where if if he was healthy, these last few weeks would be, all right, well, this kid really has to show us something. Where, you know, how many pa- touchdown passes does he have this year? Three? Four? Yeah. It's not a lot. Um, so, you know, he's he's really got to start – you know, flourishing and and Jason Garrett. I mean, this is a well-established offensive line. It's not like he's kind of wallowing under a rookie coordinator. And I I don't know. It's just, I think that would have been the main focus here. If he was healthy down the stretch. Um, Listen, even if they go one and three down the stretch, it's, you know, it's, it's not, not the end of the world here. It's, you know, go, you know, finish your six and 10, finish it. You know, heck, Finish, finish a five and eleven for all I care. You know, it's it's. I I think this is a year of a lot more positives than we thought in the first place. So I I I'm I'm already ready to label it a win. But then again, I spend my Sundays watching every Giants and every Jets game. So this team is leaps and <laughs> bounds better than the other New York team. Other than the Bills, the Bills are amazing.
0: Well, uh, before we jump over to the Jets, which well, I have a few uh, comments of my own on. You know, Daniel Jones, I believe he's holding one league record to this day, and that is longest free run distance where you fall flat on your face. Has to be. So, when I saw that, you know, immediately I just thought of SpongeBob when Squidward just falls down the mountain and uh, just blows wow. up. Like, Oh,
1: yeah. I said
0: it. was, But I don't know. I, I, Personally, I like Daniel Jones. I was a big advocate for Eli Manning. So seeing him in there, just every time I see him falter, it just feels like to me like he'll make up for it. He'll fix it. He'll get it together. Hopefully I'm right about that. I really, really hope I'm right about that. We'll see what happens. And he was mentored by Eli Manning. So I'm sure that there have been plenty of conversations between the two where Daniel Jones has said, hey, Eli, what happens when I get sacked Fumble the football, and then the team run, and then the other team runs it back and scores on me. And Eli probably said, "You just get back out there, you throw a touchdown, or whatever it is." But I'm sure he's been mentored on the same mistakes that Eli Manning had made. And if you take away those two miracle Super Bowl runs, could you imagine what people would say about Eli?
1: He's not in the Hall of Fame conversation, that's for sure.
0: Exactly. Okay. So. As crazy as it sounds, and that's the thing, like you said, football, it's only 16 weeks. You only have to get it right less times than most other sports. So that's that's the thing. Look at a season like this. Somehow the Giants can still, like you said, maybe we're looking at a five-win season. Maybe we're looking at football in January. Imagine that. Jones comes back. Imagine he wins a playoff game. Then I think it's like, all right, these Giants are the real deal. They got it together. Be afraid because every single week, let alone day, minute, hour, they are progressing into a team that could be a force. We'll see. Like you said, I think this season's a success. I don't think they're done. I want to see them just fight to the last second, the last down. I want to see them put everything they have. I want to see them leave it on the field this season. Even if it doesn't mean they win another game, I just want to see them never give up and never quit and never put themselves out of the equation. That's what I want to see. It's just a hard-fighting unit that realizes this is what we got to do if we want to become an elite squad. So we'll see. Start of the mission. But either way, Giants fans have hope. Because imagine, again, imagine Saquon Barkley coming back into this. I, I hope it'll be wonderful. Now, let's go to a uh, another team that is in uh, the National Football League by association only, uh, the New York Jets. Now, uh, Joe, do, do you want to start on this one, or uh, does it need an introduction?
1: I don't think that I could say anything that hasn't already been said. Uh, In in all honesty, you know, I, I I don't know how many times I've written the word dumpster fire in an article pertaining to the Jets this year. I I can probably count on two hands. And, you know, maybe my vocabulary isn't as expansive as I thought it would be, but it's also the most fitting description for them. Uh, How else would you describe it? Up and coming? Like, prosperous future?
0: A train wreck? Yeah, or or a plane crash. I guess that's the most fitting for the Jets.
1: Inferno? I don't know. I don't
0: know. So I have to ask because you can't be on social media for more than two minutes without seeing hashtag tank for Trevor show up. Do you think that the Jets are deliberately tanking this season? As a winless Uh, team. uh, In case you didn't know, the Jets have not won a game in 2020. Please continue.
1: Um... You know, it's, it's, you talk to the coaches and the players, and they are, you know, we're going out there to win a football game.
0: They did not uh, win a football game.
1: They have not won a football game. Um, you know, they're, I, and I am still living under this ignorant dream that, you know, teams do not, you know, tank and they don't throw games in X, Y, and Z. Of course Z.
0: not. Look at the New York
1: Knicks. Right. <laughs> just, but at the same time, you have an instance like two weeks ago against the Oakland Raiders where, you know, you're up with 15 seconds left and they're 46 yards away and you're sending seven guys on a blitz and leaving your rookie quarterback man-to-man with one of the speediest receivers in the league down the left sideline. What? Like, to, to me, that's nothing more than, like, I, I can see – listen, Greg Williams is he's – a, he's a terrible person. Um, he's not a good coach. Um, he doesn't deserve to be in the NFL as it is. So, you know what? Him making that play call, no, well, that makes sense. But would it surprise me if ownership called down to the sidelines and said, you need to let them score. We need to go on 16." That wouldn't surprise me either, because that that's the Jets. The Jets have become a verb. You jetsed. <laughs> the, the, jet, the Jets jest. That's so Jets. Like, yeah. Listen, they they never surprise me anymore with their incompetence, with their dysfunctionality. Nothing they could do. And that includes getting the first pick, teasing this whole fan base for a year after going 0-16. And taking the safety instead of a quarterback. This <laughs> doesn't surprise
0: me anymore. <laughs> you know what, Joe, you're right. You're so right about it. And to go back to that play against um the Las Vegas Raiders now, that's uh getting fun to say.
1: Did I say Oakland?
0: You might have, just clearing it up for, for anyone I... listening. Uh all we have left are um are Brad Pitt and the athletics in uh in Oakland right now. But oh. Um, that game, you know, that play reminded me of like playing a game of Madden where it was just like four verticals versus engage eight. And, you know, and the blitz didn't work and it was just like, Oh, look. And then it's just like, all right, rematch. But there was another play that had that same feel to it. And that was on Monday night football against the Patriots with Joe Flacco when he threw the interception and I feel like it's wrong to accuse professional athletes of throwing games. Although, to me, that just feels unethical. It feels like an ethical violation where you're deliberately losing. Although the counter of it is you're just following instructions. But either way, it you know, it felt like, again, it felt like a video game. The way the Patriots just ran down the field. And like the Jets, it was like, let them catch it, but make it look close. So... Say they are tanking or just not playing up to standard, not trying. Maybe it's also a combination of what's the point in me diving for a ball, tearing my ACL, like Saquon Barkley, so on and so forth. What's the point of me overexerting myself for this? We're not even going to win a single game, or maybe we're a two-win team. What's the point of trying? And I think you're getting a mixed bag of players who are not giving 100%. Maybe, of course, there's talk about Trevor Lawrence and everything. But I think also it's just, what's the point of risking getting hurt for? Why would I dive on that? You know, Why would I jump up on that coverage? Why would I leap for that catch? Why would I take that sack? Why would I do this? Why would I do that? So I think it's a little bit of just apathy and maybe there is some discussion of all right you know ownership or you know whoever you know we're getting the call don't don't call all out make it a three-minute drill not a two-minute drill whatever it is so i i don't know it's extremely upsetting to see but i also have a problem with it because of sam darnold Let's rewind the clock. What was it, 2014, 2015, 2016 when he came in?
1: 2018.
0: 2018. Jeez, I'm old. Um, so 2018, Sam Darnold comes in. Let's rewind the clock to then. He was Trevor Lawrence. He was Trevor Lawrence of his time. Maybe who was the other guy? Sam Rosen?
1: Those, those were the,
0: uh, the two at the time?
1: Yeah, well, it was, yeah, it was uh, Baker Mayfield, Josh Rosen. Josh um,
0: Rosen, rather.
1: Uh, and um, Allen. Josh Allen. Yeah. Josh Rosen. Sam Darnold. There's so, more there that I'm blanking on here. And I uh, don't know why. But regardless.
0: But, you know, he was, he was a Trevor Lawrence-esque candidate for quarterback. Now, I have a theory that drafting a quarterback is like buying a car. If you're picking a new one up every three or four years, you're doing something wrong. You didn't buy that thing. You leased it. And what do franchises do? The term franchise quarterback means you bought the car. You didn't get the lease that doesn't come with seat heaters and, and a detachable roof, convertible, whatever. And what the Jets are doing is they're leasing quarterbacks. They're not buying one. And what do you know? After two or three years, the lease is up and you got to bring it back to the dealer. So I almost, you know, I want to make a professional bet right now that in 2022 or 2023, we're having a conversation that Trevor Lawrence is overrated, he's got to go. He's, he's not what they thought he was going to be. You know, he's not throwing well, et cetera. What are, what are the other things being said about Sam right now? He's not a good fit for the offense. It drives me crazy. It really does. It's not the young quarterback jets, fans jets, coaches jets, players, Even the Winnipeg Jets. Everyone listen up here, okay? It is not their fault. I feel like Robin Williams in in Good Will Hunting, it's not your fault. Sam Darnold, it's not your fault. This is a cycle. This is a problem. This is something that isn't going to change unless there is extreme interjection. And I have a theory for that. Because how much are you going to – the Jets are on the new Browns. As you said that the Browns are now a relevant, powerful football team, have had the best season since their resurrection, ever since everything with Art Modell in Baltimore. The Jets are the new Browns. You get a new quarterback, you ruin the new quarterback, so you get a new quarterback and blame it on the previous quarterback. And it's almost insult to injury because, and yes, it was a long time ago. We reflect on the Giants' 2011 championship season. The Jets... We're in the AFC championship the year before that. What a gosh darn fall from grace this decade has been for a franchise that has come close. Heck I'll admit, I thought it would have been awesome to see the jets in the super bowl in 2010 Pittsburgh gets it instead, but still, you know, back-to-back, back, when whenever you beat the Patriots in the playoffs, it's, it's a heck of a season. And, and seeing that, you see Rex Ryan jogging with his one good leg into the end zone, even if you're not a fan of the Jets, like, you just appreciate that sports moment where it's like, we're not supposed to be here. This is the bully that's been stealing our lunch money for years. We came out, we punched you in the mouth of the playoffs, and now we're going to the ACC championship. They were riding so high on that. Look at them now. Took no momentum from it. Nothing at all. Head coaches. Quarterbacks. Uh, Was Butt Fumble pre or post uh, Patriots divisional win? Post? Post. You have a posterior play which has been replayed on Center for as Billy Joel would say the longest time I think it's only been recently retired as as the number one not top 10 Th- that's the only way because you have to laugh about it and gosh almighty if I grew up a Jets fan I don't know what I would be doing right now but I can tell you even if Trevor Lawrence gets you a into the playoffs, he is not your franchise's answer because I have news for you. It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. And just like the Knicks, it's on the ownership. I have a little rubric that I think I've shared with you about why teams do bad. Two to five years is usually your coach. Five to 10 years, usually your general manager. 15 years, call it finances. 20-plus years, that's your owner. That's your owner. When something goes wrong for 20 years, you got to look to the top of the heap right there. And it's, it's the Jets' ownership that's going to allow this to continue happening because the reality is, for a lot of owners in sports, and clearly this isn't the case with everyone, as Jerry Jones is a spinning image of that, but a lot of owners in sports don't care. Look in baseball with Bing Crosby owning the Pirates or Wrigley owning the Cubs. There's a reason the Cubs took 108 years to win the World Series. Wrigley didn't care. He wanted to sell gum and all of his other stuff. That that was the, the truth of the matter. And it's as Al Gore once said, it's an inconvenient truth to think about. Winning is not a priority for all owners in sports. And the Jets are a clear case of this. But... I have a bit of a, let's call it a wild theory, even though it's not so wild and it's done in probably the most globally recognized leagues of a different sport in the world. And this could put owners in check to actually invest in their teams and make them competitive in football. And that is to bring in a practice done in a different kind of football. And Joe, I know I've talked to you about this. Tell me if I sound crazy. I don't think so, especially if we're going to look at an 0-16 Jets. And that is relegation. So instead of rewarding teams who deliberately hashtag tank for Trevor or whatever it is, and you saw with the Cleveland Browns with Baker Mayfield, I'm sure we can go back dozens and dozens of years talking about this. Instead of incentivizing teams to play bad with a high draft pick, Threaten them that they're going to get bumped out of the league. Now, to do this, a lot of systems have to be put in place, but I think the NFL should jump into a two-tier system where you expand to smaller markets to form a minor league almost or a, a tier two, whatever you want to call it. And you've seen this been experimented with different football leagues throughout the years. But the one thing that would make this different is that the smaller teams, if they win, get to replace, say, either the two or three bottom teams in the NFL. If you win the two tier two title, you're an NFL team the next season. And the 0-16 Jets would play at a minor league level and have to re-get themselves back into the National Football League. Give Hawaii a team. They have Aloha Stadium. Give Orlando a team. They already have – the Camping World Bowl or or whatever that stadium is called, Camping World Stadium. They have an NFL-sized stadium. You've experimented with it. You can give Oregon a team or you can give whoever a team. San Antonio, give them the Alamo Dome. They've proven that they can handle a professional franchise. They They have, and, and – there's so many ways that you could do this where you could expand to different smaller markets where they have teams that could maybe make the NFL one day. And then you would see teams actually have to try.
1: You have a league coming back next year. It's called the XFL.
0: This is the XFL.
1: They have teams in some of those markets. Yeah. You have what they originally had labeled with the AAF, whatever it was, two years ago that fell flat on its face. And now the XFL, it was going to be a feeder system to the NFL. Well, by this, instead of it being a feeder system, it's a threat. Exactly. And play the games midweek. Do them on Wednesday nights.
0: So there's no competition. You don't have to worry about people not watching the NFL. You don't have to worry about a competition with college football. And the one thing is after Monday and between Thursday, those, that's a long 72 hours, especially in a case like this where you don't have other sports to, to kind of pacify at least before you'd have the benefit of Tuesday night, local hockey, a Wednesday night game of the week or something like that. You get basketball with NBA Wednesday, you know, some spillover with baseball, but this is an opportunity also to rectify markets like San Diego, Oakland, as we talked about, St. Louis. Yeah. And then expand to some other ones. Cool. Cool. Maybe maybe it's a financial disaster and every owner's having a heart attack just thinking about such a concept. But as someone who doesn't have skin in the game, I would love to see the San Diego power generators make it back to the NFL somehow or whoever it is, or the St. Louis random access memory instead of Rams, what, whatever it's going to be. But I wouldn't love to see that. And that's something that I think uh, the traditional American fan has never had to worry about, and and we all talk about, there's a lot of jokes about soccer not being a tough guy sport or whatever you want to call it. I think the fact that teams risk getting relegated, getting sent down to the minor leagues if they don't play good, that's as tough as you got to be. And you can look at it, it would probably never happen to the Jets because in the history of English football, using them as an example, because they're probably the most relatable to everyone listening, The major teams, like the London squads and everyone, never get sent down. I believe it was, and I could be wrong about this, but I believe West Ham was the only major market squad to ever face relegation. So, I don't know. I think that the NFL needs a spark right now. Because unless you're watching a competitive team, or a team like the Giants, who are not tanking, even as we're talking about, we're saying finish middle of the pack if you have to. Just finish strong. That's so uncommon now. It's extremely uncommon.
1: Right, and it creates that much more excitement for these teams that are kind of trudging through those last few weeks of the season where, all right, you know, we're eliminated from playoff contention, but really, I mean, I've I've watched the Premier League for 15 years now, well, more than that, 20 years now, um, where some of the most exciting games are not, you know, at the top of the table where it's, you know, most of the time the, the title is decided, but it's these less relegation battles where three teams are going down, but you have six in the relegation zone where it changes week to week. And that's the thing. It's a lot of financial hoops that the league would have to jump through. But basically at the end of the year, for staying in the top tier, each team is rewarded with X amount of dollars, right? So that's added, obviously, to your, you know, whatever funds you have from your owner, from revenue, from concessions, whatever whatever you want to call it. Um, so that's what, you know, the, the, the problem with American sports, and, and it's not the reason why it was created, but there's too big of a reward for losing. And the lottery systems kind of try and keep teams honest in the NBA and the NHL. Um, with Major League Baseball, the draft is such a crapshoot where you know only a, a percentage of first rounders even see the majors. You know, just a fraction. Um, but but in football, it's 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 too easy. You know, you basically you take a year off and you get a. Game-changing talent, and and granted, we've seen organizations just not be able to get it right, and that falls on ownership. Sure, um, you know we've seen the Lions in the two thousands; they they couldn't get it right. They had how many top three picks? We saw the Browns; how many top five picks? We've seen the Jets. Heck, we've seen the Giants in recent years. Yeah, so the Giants had a slip, without a doubt. Right. So this needs to put pressure. This puts pressure on everybody involved. And, and uh, yes, pressure is a privilege that comes with this, you know, with performing in these roles. But at the same time, um, you know, kind of uh, taking off, you know, it, it kind of sets in. Complacency, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, Complacency sets in for these owners, or these general managers, where, you know, the goal is to just own the team and to kind of reap the rewards of owning the team. Uh, there need, There needs to be more, and if you want to add another division of excitement to the NFL because I think that 's the league that it could really work in relegation um, that this is it yeah uh, because you, is... you you make you make a matchup of you know two three and ten teams in week fourteen or week fifteen, you make that must see football. There it is. Of course. You know, take notes, Roger Goodell. I'm making you money. I,
0: I hope he's listening. Uh, Mr. Goodell, if you are listening to our podcast, we may have said some not-so-kind things about you in the past. Uh, while we do not regret them, we do encourage that you keep listening to us. And, you know, Joe, to, to go to an example of not relegation, but hardball in American football, look at how college football is executed. One – they have bowl eligibility. You need to win six games. If you want to play in the Alamo Bowl or the whatever bowl, literally if you, if you even want to make the toilet bowl, you need to win at least six games. And again, in college, you see teams that are not bowl eligible still fight to get that fifth win at the end of November. Why? Because if they don't play well and if they don't show that they are a good team, student-athletes will choose a different college or university. It is, you know, I, managing college is much more difficult than it is manage, managing the NFL on those standards, is that you can't fall on a Jets year. Could you imagine, because Jets obviously play in the America's biggest market, New York City, technically New Jersey, Imagine if, in the SEC, college football's biggest market, you had—well, not say let's not say Alabama or LSU because they're top tier, but let's let's say Ole Miss. What if Ole Miss had a winless season? What if that happened?
1: Yeah, there would be riots. Well, the, the streets would be burning in Mississippi right now.
0: Why? Are, and, and I'm not inciting violence. To be clear. Why are, why are Jets fans excited about this? You see certain entertainment personalities who will remain nameless cheering when the Jets blow big games. And maybe some of it's just for the shock value or the attention or attracting college kids who are yet to be able to form their own thoughts. But when I see that, gosh, Joe, like, like it makes me sick.
1: It it really does. I do. I understand. But at the same time, like this is, you know, Trevor Lawrence is a, is a prospect and a talent that is, you know, the the best we've seen in the last 20 years. I mean, this is, this kid is the, it's the epitome of can't miss. Now I'm not saying that drafting him is automatically going to turn the Jets franchise around because like you alluded to, um, it's been nothing short of an institutional failure, which has basically run Sam Darnold out of town. Um, and again, nobody, nobody is going to say that Mark Sanchez and Geno Smith were ever going to be the answers. Uh, Geno Smith forgot about him. These are high draft picks that crashed and burned in, burned in New York. And listen, it's short. Sure, you know, I'm not saying these guys are good quarterbacks. But at the same time, they were never given a chance. They're, They're pretty bad hard.
0: quarterbacks, either though.
1: Exactly. No, that, no, no. That, that that's that's for certain. Sam Darnold, when put in the right situation, I I still I still don't think he's a bad quarterback. He's 24, 23. This kid's he, he's he's just got to be put in the right situation where he was just thrown into the inferno that was the Jets and said, "All right, kid, you're on your own." Basically, what what has Adam Gaze done? Again, and this comes down to Christopher Johnson and whomever the decision-makers of the Jets were at the time. Uh, you bring in a guy like Adam Gaze, who hasn't done a thing. Has, listen, look, look what happened with Ryan Tannehill. He ran Ryan Tannehill into the ground, and that was it. We all wrote Ryan Tannehill off, and then he goes to Tennessee and he leads him to the AFC Championship game last year. The guy's a pro bowler now. Yeah. All all you need to do is just you gotta find that right situation, man. And, and it's just, I I I really think there is something in Sam Donald. and and this is, you know, this might be my moment on freezing cold tapes. Um, but he was always up against it because he was never surrounded with the proper talent. Of course, he was. I,
0: I agree with you. That's not a cold take at all. Right. And I think there's a lot of people that would support you on that. Is that?
1: But but again, we're going to talk about Trevor Lawrence like this in two years. I really. I. That's listen, the thing. I did not grow up a Jets fan, but it, it's gotten to the point where, like, I, I pity them. And for Jets fans' sake, and for a incredibly talented prospect like Trevor Lawrence. For his sake, I hope that doesn't happen either because it's just another amazingly promising career that's going to be derailed. What is in place to
0: prevent it, though? You know, I feel like the Jets drafting Trevor Lawrence, like, it's going to be like Fight Club. What did you do that for? I wanted to destroy something beautiful. Like, like that's really what, what it feels like. Yeah. Even for the Jets' best hope at acquiring a successful version of Trevor Lawrence is letting another team draft him and picking him up in two or three years, because Lord knows he they 're going to blow it they 're going to blow it with him, and if they don 't and the Jets make the playoffs, may I be smited down and cast away from the sports world? I hope it works out because. I just want to see that team be competitive. I want to see those starved fans have something to legitimately root for like it's 2010 again. I'm not rooting against them. I just feel like I'm stating the obvious there because I would love to see Jets and Giants playing competitive ball in New York city, technically New Jersey at the same time that nothing would thrill me more than that, but geez, Joe, how do you look a Jets fan in the eye and say they're not going to blow, blow it with Trevor Lawrence?
1: You can't. And that's the thing. And, and this is where the Jets always seem to have a built-in scapegoat, where they're going to go 0-16 this year or 1-15. Who knows? And if it goes 1-15, that'll be a, a tragedy for a majority of the fan base because they might then lose out on Trevor Lawrence. But uh, there's always a scapegoat. It's Adam Gaze. It was Red Williams a couple years ago. Uh, excuse me, a couple weeks ago. Um, It's going to be Sam Darnold. Um, In reality, it goes all the way up top to Christopher Johnson, obviously. But this is the offseason where all of the pressure is going to be heaped on Joe Douglas, the general manager, because he's going to be responsible for fixing the offensive line because you're going to have the golden boy quarterback coming in here. And you have have to get the kid – playmakers and there is something that listen Denzel Mims there's something there Rashad Perriman there's something there Jameson Crowder a great slot receiver Braxton Barrios I don't know but you shouldn't have let Robbie Anderson walk
0: you yeah didn't. you
1: shouldn't have you shouldn't have you should have maybe I mean again I, I like Denzel Mims would I have been angry if the Jets drafted two wide receivers in the first and second round no, they got to stud in Mekhi Beckton though, so they did get it right in the first round. I can't even say that. Um, but you need to build your offensive line. You got to protect this kid. I, I guess you have to you have to re refine the running game because you had an all pro running back in Le'Veon Bell, who was the best dual threat running back that we've seen in recent years, and Adam Gaze ran him out of town. What, what are you doing? Every everything. I don't know. Everything that was good and that was positive, the little bit that it was, was destroyed. And, and and now you got, and now Joe Douglas has to be left to pick up the pieces. And if it doesn't work, it's Joe Douglas's fault. And then it's on to the next schmuck.
0: Now, what I'm about to say, I'm, I'm going to make two doomsday points like we haven't made enough about the Jets. So ready. One is what could have been. And that is Trevor Lawrence, Le'Veon Bell, Robbie Anderson, all playing for the New York Jets at once. Now I'm going to pause for a brief moment for any Jets fans to let out their screams. Thank you for that moment of silence. And now I'm going to give the next and realistic doomsday scenario if Trevor Lawrence does become a New York Jet. And that is on a snowy or cold December or November evening, maybe a rainy one in September, who knows, a weak and tired offensive line will not provide the necessary protection for Trevor Lawrence. And he's going to take a hit like Daniel Jones and he's going to get hurt. And your quarterback is as good as your offensive line. If he can't get the ball off, look at it with Eli Manning at the end of his career. Look at it so much with Daniel Jones. Look at it with Sam Darnold. You don't have that line. You don't have that quarterback. And for the Jets to do one without the other, well, guess what? You join the cycle. You you get in the Sam Darnold cycle. That's, that's it. And I hope that Trevor Lawrence doesn't get hurt. Never wish an injury on anyone. I can't see if the Jets don't have the right pieces, how he's going to evade injury in his rookie year. I, I really can't. And I hope that doesn't happen. I certainly don't. But if you're a Jets fan, every time he's taken the field, you're sweating bullets.
1: They, they, they have to spend. They don't. Listen. Listen. to use the term rebuild is is an understatement, you know, and it's one thing where, oh, you know, we can rebuild through the draft and we can find all these pieces and we can build, you know, uh, this long-term pipeline of success. And, you know, for the next 10 years we'll be great. It's not going to happen overnight and it's not going to happen just through the draft. So if you do get the number one pick in Trevor Lawrence, you have to go out on the free agent market, on the trade market, you have to get established you know well known reliable offensive linemen and just make it happen you know it's one you have Beckton. there's your start okay would you know would i would jets fans care if everybody else left i i don't think so it's, yeah. it it's just that, that's priority number one. If Trevor Lawrence is drafted, then the rest of the priority for the offseason heading into 2021 is protect Trevor Lawrence at all costs. Sure, you know, he might need a playmaker or two. I, I think what they have would keep him afloat for a year. Just protect the kid. Yeah. And then just go from there. It's not that hard of a concept. Listen, I – I, I never even played organized football. I never did. I, my extent of playing football was beating the crap out of my friends, you know, in, in, in the uh, abandoned school building four blocks from my house. That's it. How come I can do this better? How come Jets fans can do this better? I, I don't understand. It's, it's, it's not that hard. It's, it's really not hard.
0: wanting to give up the necessary assets, as we talked about. It's not an ability to. It's a choice. Yeah, That's they what's so upsetting It is a choice And right. it's the same thing That New York Knicks fans feel mm-hmm. It's not It's not incompetence It's a choice Right. The Jets could win games this year The Jets could have made the playoffs More times in the past Decade It is a choice And it's hurting the little people The people who can't control the matter They don't care the corporate billionaires who operate the New York Jets, not just them, but but you're talking about every single dysfunctional sports team in the Western and even Eastern hemisphere. They don't care about you. They don't care about their team. You wish that leagues would put in more systems of checks and balances for that when, teams are to be bought you get steve cohens right people that not only have the financial assets but the emotional assets too to operate a ball club or a football team or a hockey team you know you look at the islanders and john spano what a nightmare that was there has been over the past 25 years a crisis of ownership with new york teams and you have, like, you know, it, it almost feels like two political parties, you know, or you have like the establishment teams, the Giants and the Yankees, the Rangers, and then. You have like the uh, whatever the progressives, I guess is what you'd call them, which is the, the Jets, the Islanders, even uh, the Brooklyn Nets, who a uh, member of the Russian Communist Party has owned for a long time with Mikhail Prokhorov. That, that's a fact. I'm not speculating. He He's a registered member of the Communist Party. And he's operating with major capital in America. That's that's a fact that's happening. But the, there is some good news on the Nets, Kyrie Irving and all of that stuff. Uh, I guess this is a good opportunity to segue into a little bit of basketball. Yes. That's, that's going on right now. And, yeah. well, we can say some other things about a basketball team that plays in blue and orange and in the world's most famous arena who is also not living up to standard or expectation. And again, that is not because of ability. It is because of choices made by the guy who gave us HBO, James Dolan.
1: Yeah. Um, it's obviously been a very long two decades for next fans and you know, it's always kind of been this unfounded optimism where it's every season. It's like, well, if this can happen and if these hypotheticals can happen, well, then maybe we can slip into a playoff spot or something along those lines. Um, however, and this is, I, I also like, in spite of James Dolan, um, the Knicks have a clear direction. And we we can't say that often uh, because they've been a disaster an unpredictable unmitigated disaster but uh, they brought in leon rose he has brought in tom thibodeau who is a established head coach who is a pretty well respected head coach who worked with the knicks before who was with the organization the last time they were an actual threat in the eastern conference Um, and they're going with the kids, they're rebuilding through youth and they didn't sabotage that by making some foolish move to get a Chris Paul or a Russell Westbrook. And they were rumored to do so this year. And, you know, all of those hopes that were hinged on getting in the top free agents, like we've seen in years past, whether it was LeBron James or Kawhi Leonard or Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving, who are now playing across town. It's, those, those kind of unbridled expectations were kind of real back, where that's not really going to happen this year. And, and thank goodness, no, this, this is not how it should be. You know, Knicks fans shouldn't be spending the last 20 years saying, well, we can just go out and we should sign somebody. No, we'll be good. You got to grow right. some home talent. Right, they need they're, it this actually, they're actually accruing the necessary assets to start to build the foundation. And that sounds super convoluted, and I get it because it is. They have a hodgepodge of youngsters right now, man. You look at that roster, I mean you you got your Mitchell Robinson's, your Kevin Knox's, your Frank Milikina's, your RJ Barrett's. You know, you got Obi Toppin in the mix now. You got a ton of youngsters. And they all could be starting, and and you're looking at your vets. Julius Randle's like 26 years old, and he's like the old wily vet of the bunch. Where Knicks fans are like, we should trade him, get his contract off the books. That's just where this team is going. If you're going down, lose the kids. And I listen. I it remains to be seen if Tom Thibodeau is going to do that. Because um, he said playing time is going to be earned. So you know what I like that. I, I do too. So I think you have to kind of tamper those expectations of seeing a starting five at the beginning of the season that looks like, say, I don't know, an Emmanuel quickly and R.J. Barrett, Obi Toppin, and Mitchell Robinson—all these super young kids. It might not be like that, you know. They they went out and they made these really nice veteran depth signings, you know, like an Alec Burks uh, to come in and kind of nurture these young kids. Uh, like in New Noel, on team-friendly deals, like an Austin Rivers, um, and come in and play a teacher for a little bit. And, again, the Knicks aren't going to be a playoff team, but they need to have those pieces in place. And, again, uh, Thibodeau brought in uh, Kenny Payne from Kentucky, and the Knicks have a ton of Kentucky kids too. And so it's all these little things where you need to get the most out of these young talents, and you need to start discovering – who can really fit in this system? I think time is running out for a kid like Frank Melichina. Yeah, you know, I already think time is starting to run out for Kevin Knox. He's got to show us something this year. So it's, you know, it, it's it's starting that rebuild, but it's also weeding out the unnecessary pieces that kind of create the illusion of okay, well we're going with the youth and we're going forward. But you got to find those right pieces. To it's creating
0: with. a filter to see who is going to be the next legacy players in new york and to jump over to the borough that we used to work out of back when uh we were in the office every day the brooklyn nets are kind of doing the opposite of that
1: and you know what for the nets it's it's a little different and what i will say is good for them because you know they were absolutely gutted by that Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Jason Terry deal with the Celtics. And they were the laughing stock of the NBA. And they were going to be in this hole that we thought was going to last pretty well into the 2020s. And they managed a way way to find – you know, they they clawed their way out. And kudos to Kenny Atkinson, who is not with the team anymore. And kudos to D'Angelo Russell – for getting them out of that hole. Because, again, they weren't expected to, and they made it to the playoffs.
0: Um,
1: So that kind of put them ahead of schedule. That kind of put Brooklyn back on the mat. That suddenly said, hey, you know what? There's another team in New York. You can play in that big market. You can play in the Big Apple. You can play in the big city. One of the meccas of American basketball, even though the Barclays Center is not really that mecca, but the city itself is.
0: Well, it's a hockey mecca. I'm sure we can all agree on that.
1: (laughs) <laughs> no way but all of a sudden that place becomes so much more attractive compared to the Knicks compared to MSG because okay you know what they had that culture in place you know what there are you know Karis Silvert's going to be something Jared Allen's going to be something Spencer Witt- did he's a star and Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving recognized that and Kyrie Irving grew up a Nets fan so I mean it was all kind of written in the stars there for him and they're now a favorite
0: in the East something I heard on ESPN's Barton Hahn some weeks ago, because this is a a perennial discussion, you know, the appeal to being in New York, Nick versus playing in Brooklyn, isn't what it was in the nineties. And of course, you know, then it was New Jersey versus Brooklyn, but you know, those Knicks were legends, Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, the, the 94 guys, the 99 guys, They were legends, and they inspired every basketball court in the tri-state area. Kids who grew up wherever, in Oakland, California, or Texas, wherever it was, they all aspired to go play in Madison Square Garden. Even though those Knicks didn't finish the job, it was a hollow ground, a mecca, as you called it. This generation, what did they know about the Knicks? maybe Amari Stoudemire, uh, obviously Carmelo, but you know when when it comes to big moments Joe since 2005
1: what's the next biggest moment? A couple of, a couple of playoff appearances? You know they had a 50 win season with Melo and Amari, but that was it. But yeah. But look at Brooklyn now. Brooklyn, you can actually
0: talk about recent and relevant, huge things that the Nets have done. And that goes back to starting the franchise in, or starting the franchise in Brooklyn in 2012, 2013, with the, the season following with that battle against the Raptors in seven. And you get the SWAT. They, when you win game seven by one point in any sport, that's a, that's a legacy moment. And it started there. And you could just see that they kept fighting and fighting. I remember, uh, even the season before that, they had a triple overtime game with the Bulls in in the playoffs. And just from the get go, it's like, all right, this is a team that's going to be in the playoffs. They screw up, they're going to get back in it. This is a team that's taken over New York. The express train's going to Brooklyn. The express train's not going to Midtown now.
1: I mean, I I don't know, and and I will, and this is, this is just a feeling that I'm getting. New York is always, and it, it doesn't matter what the nets are building right now is national. It's global. They're building this brand, you know, where it's going to be to the point where it's going to be like the Golden State Warriors, where you go out of your house on Long Island and you see the little kids walking around with Stephen Curry jerseys. That's what it was going to be like. It's going to be kids all across America. They're going to be, you know, wearing the Kevin jerseys or whatever. But to me, New York will always be Knicks. And who knows? That might be the nostalgia talk thing, but I don't – I really can't see – who knows? The Nets can go out. They can win three straight titles. They could. They can go out. They can win three straight titles, and they could be the, you know, uh, inarguable best team in basketball. They could be a dynasty. The second, the second the Knicks are good again,
0: well, Why is back. that happening?
1: That's the I'll,
0: I'll give that to you. That that's sure. that's a very fair assessment. Sure. But you know, look look at the last decade. You right. compare the Knicks to the Nets, and again, you know that that's a if you can call it a rivalry, it's certainly one that's put on ice. Huh. The only thing yeah. I can think of is Jason Kidd, while playing for the Knicks, hitting a a three and one the first year in Brooklyn. But you know, besides that, not many meaningful games have been played between the two teams, and. In what's felt like the longest time, because it has been the longest time. Right. So I don't know. It, I Maybe it will never, you'll never replace the Knicks, but I'll give an example of wow. 2015 in baseball. Obviously, you know that New York will always have a deep rooted Yankees fan base, but even Yankees fans, Yankees reporters. I was in college, so I was not a reporter at the time. But as someone who followed the Yankees their entire life, I was turned on to the Mets. I was angry when everything happened with the Dodgers in the NLDS. I, I was mad for the Mets as someone who's exclusively paid attention to the Yankees their entire lives, and I I, I think that that's going to kind of be the Brooklyn Nets effect. Is that even Knicks fans because there, there is no hatred between the two teams. It's like Giants and Jets. Like, oh, Brandon Jacobs said something about Rex Ryan one year. That, that was it. You know, there, there's no real hostility at a professional level between the two. So if you're a Knicks fan, watching your team maybe attain its eighth win midway through the season, and you see the Red Hot Brooklyn Nets I think at least for the time being, maybe it's not a permanent culture change. I think you're watching the game at least. I think you're turned on to it. It's just like, this is happening around me. It's a team. They're good. I don't hate them. And they're establishing a legacy for
1: themselves. I don't know. I, I don't know. I think there are going to be a lot of Knicks fans that will watch, but it's, it is hate watching. It is, you know, at the end of the day, these are, new, you know, the new kids on the block and they come in and they're going to say, oh, New York is ours. Knicks fans don't want to hear that. That's going to be a tough pill for them to swallow.
0: I think it's going to start a, a younger generation that is not sure. so overwhelmingly, outstandingly Knicks, like you said. And it'll probably hit a splash in places like Nassau County, where the Nets started, where the Nets minor league team is Nassau Coliseum. Back in the ABA, one year for the NBA. That that's where it all began. I have to give the you know the home a shout out there, but. I think you're going to start to see that of course the seasoned Knicks fans who have been in this fight for so long you know losing these seasons and after oh it it just hurts to think about jeez 1999 that, that's a long long time ago and even look at since then when was the last Knicks playoff appearance wasn't it uh, the, against the Pacers in what, 2012? They made it to the second round? Or, or the Celtics, which happened? There were, there were only like two in my adolescence. It's
1: been, it's been nine years.
0: Nine years, exactly.
1: Or, or something, yeah, something like that. So
0: it's,
1: it's,
0: you're it's, talking about 10-year-old kids now have never consciously seen the Knicks in the playoffs. However, in their lifetime, they've seen the Nets in their inceptive year 2012 2013 or well 2013 because season jumps over so 2013 2014 did they make it in 2015 no but 2016 they gave the Hawks a run for their money in six correct or was that 2017
1: oh boy no I mean they, they had some really bad some really bad years you know that there was, there was the uh, you know like the whatever it was they were they had wins in the teens you know it was yeah they had some bad and and i think for the Knicks, i think it's been 7 years since they made the playoffs but i the same what's the difference at this point what you know what's the difference yeah
0: the point is that young kids have seen one team win and one team lose and and i'm not saying that the, the nets have finished the job but they've watched basketball in may with with, with a team that they're relevant to the team yeah. that if they wanted to go see they could and i think that if the Nets become superstars, the Nets have a deep run. You're looking at a generation that didn't grow up watching the New York Knicks.
1: Yeah. And like you said, I think in after this in, you know, 10, 12 years, you, you might see that shift. You might see, you know, 10, 12 years, teenagers and, you know, kids in their late teens and early twenties to, you know, the demographics going to shift where they are going to be Nets fans. And, yeah you know it's who knows but uh yeah i you know you you really hope for the state of the New York basketball landscape that the Knicks can figure it out because I mean you know we say we say baseball is better when both the Mets and Yankees are good. um I think it'll hit a completely different level when the Knicks and Nets are good at the same time in their division rivals.
0: I would love that yeah. I, I the last time I think that was. I don't even remember, Joe, because I was like six years old when the Nets had their finals runs. How were the Knicks? Were they any good? Were they playoff team? Or was it just like Knicks stink, Nets are doing it in Jersey?
1: Yeah, no, the uh, the Knicks had an early playoff exit in 2001 or two to the Nets. One year it was against the Raptors. They were bouncing the first round. And then the next year they were – I think it was the Nets. Um, so, really, it's been – it's, it's been a long time coming that this rivalry actually becomes something, but, you know, it's just, you know, we've got to wait for both teams to get there.
0: Waiting a long time. Waiting a, a really long time. And uh, speaking of waiting, this brings me into our other sports. The New York Yankees are playing a bit of a waiting game now with all-star second baseman DJ LeMahieu. His contract is up. He wants a lot of money. Yankees haven't agreed on it. Joe, I know that you've gotten somewhat far in communication with Lemayhu's people on on what you've heard. And obviously it's a very open field and anything can happen. But from what you've done on this, what do you know about it?
1: They're, they're far apart. Uh, it's, it's, it's a $25 million plus difference right now of what DJ Lemayhu wants to what the Yankees are willing to give them. And I think under normal circumstances, you know, I, I, I think things would be worked out a little bit easier, but the Yankees were not exempt from getting hit hard by this pandemic. Uh, they, they lost a pretty chunk of change and they're, you know, we, we've seen them in past years acting a bit more frugal with the exception, obviously of the Garrett Cole signing. um, And, and, this is a team that is performing under a budget. They exercise their $13 million option on Zach Britton. that's a pretty big, you know, chunk of change that you're spending on him too. Um, yeah. You know, you might want to try and bring a guy like Masahiro Tanaka back, but it's all contingent on what you do with DJ LeMay. I don't think that they're going to be wanting to give him a, who knows? It could be a, a you know, he could be asking for five years 60 to 70 million. Who knows? Um, I don't really know the parameters of his his contract. I know that he wants five years and the Yankees aren't willing to go five years. And we also know that they're this far, you know, incredibly far apart uh, on the money figure. Um, That doesn't bode well. And Lemayhew's representation is preparing to start talking to other teams who, over the course of the last few weeks, as the offseason has started to heat up, they've been lining up. They've been lining up to talk to him. We know the Blue Jays. We know the Dodgers. uh, We've heard some whispers about the Mets. um, But, you know, the Mets, I think, just because who their new owner is now and with the funds that they have, they're going to be connected to everybody. Um, So, again, we'll see, especially because if LeMahieu is asking for that much money, this is a team that also needs to get a center fielder. They need to get a starting pitcher. If you sign LeMahieu, then you kiss either one of say, a Trevor Bauer or a George Springer goodbye. Um, but there's going to be pressure, and the Blue Jays look poised to spend. We know that the Dodgers have a history of spending, too, so I don't know. The Yankees have to kind of kick it into overdrive if they want to get this thing done. Um, you know, there have been – like, Luke Voigt has been vocal. He's confident that, you know, is going to come back and he's going to finish his career as a Yankee, but – Right now, they're they're really far apart. And once these other teams kind of start coming in, and if they can not start making these promises of, hey, DJ, you know, what? we'll give you that number. We'll give you five years. All bets are off. So I have a
0: few theories about what's going on here. And I will preface this with saying that if the Yankees do not re-sign DJ LeMahieu and it does not directly – cause a World Series the following season. If there's not a direct correlation with they don't sign him, that season, whatever moves have been made, win a World Series, jobs will be in jeopardy. That's what kind of a big deal it is. I've never watched a more natural hitter in my life. And I've grown up watching generations of Bronx Bombers. I've grown up watching Derek Jeter. DJ LeMayhew is a new form of a natural. And that's, what's exciting. He is a natural for a generation. And I think he loves being a Yankee. I think he knows that they can finish the job. I think he's got a chip on his shoulder from a bunch of garbage can banging guys over in Houston. And I think he wants to finish the job with the Yankees and not just get a World Series on his own somewhere else that could do it. And, of course, there are plenty of other contenders he could play with. But he just screams New York Yankee to me. And it almost feels like to me where the Yankees aren't saying we dare you, but they're saying you really want to leave? And, of course, it's a business. And there was a a similar situation in Derek Jeter's career with the prospect of Troy Tulowitzki. I want to say it was around 2011. I could be a year or so off. But there was the prospect of Derek Jeter leaving. And they kept it professional, and they said it's a business. You do what you want. But I'm sure that in the conversation, there was a look eye-to-eye where it's like, do you you really want to leave? Do you really want to go? Do you really not want to be a part of what we're building? And maybe Lemayhew's using that as reverse psychology to the Yankees, where he's saying, do you really want me to leave? Do you really want me to go? This is what I'm asking for. I will talk to other teams. And I don't know, it it almost feels like, like a couple on a break. You know, it's like, yeah, you can go out and talk to people. But the second you do, you just feel guilty and you just think of them. You know, I could just see him sitting down with, like, the Blue Jays or the Mets or someone. And he just, like, gets, like, a flash of, like, Aaron Judge just, like, in the dugout, just, just like, looking at him with puppy eyes. And then he runs to the airport and they have the, the beautiful makeup, whatever it's called. Um, but really, the question is, do the Beatles want to break up?
1: At this rate, the Yankees need D.J. LeMahieu more than D.J. LeMahieu needs the Yankees.
0: That's definite, and without a doubt.
1: I think D.J., you know, at 32 years old, D.J. LeMahieu is looking for that one last big contract that will carry him and his, and his family for the rest of their lives. Um, listen, he will, you know, I... You can't come into a contract you're coming off a better two seasons than he had, so he's looking to strike while the iron's hot, and that's completely understandable. Um, but like you said, this is a business at the end of the day, and if the Yankees are suddenly acting like a smaller market club, um, you know it's just it might just not be written in the stars for him. Who knows? Would, would he be willing to take a pay cut? Who knows? You know, the guy wants a ring, then you know what? He might take, uh, you know, uh, a year less on his contract or, you know, $10 million less on his deal. But I don't know. I can see the Yankees
0: coughing up the money under their terms of years. I could see them saying, we'll give you this, but we're not going to do five, but we'll talk about it in three years. Not that they don't want to do five now, but... They just don't want to cough up something long term. They just did with Garrett Cole, and as phenomenal as he was this season, growing up watching the New York Islanders, when I hear the words 15 years," I just like, uh, 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 like, I get a a flashback to um to a man who was once out six weeks with hurt feelings, Mister Rick DiPietro, but. Besides the point, I, I understand the Yankees game in, in wanting to go short-term. As you mentioned, he is 32. Who knows how long he'll be able to keep the magic going. Not Not that he would ever perform poorly, most likely, but maybe he doesn't have the irreplaceable bat that he has because his bat is irreplaceable. That's the only word to describe it. And the Yankees have so many other things going on right now. And uh, actually, I, I spoke to uh, two Bronx natives, Jesus and Mero, and they are, or Mero, I should say, is a large advocate for Gary Sanchez behind catcher. Just thought I'd, I'd give him a, a shout out there because it's worth it. But, you know, they, they have some reality checks about what they're going to do with other players in other positions. So while LeMahieu is a big factor, he is one component of a larger equation. As you said, Masahiro Tanaka's future is going to depend on this, on what they do with LeMahieu. And, oh, it's going to break my heart if Masa ends on the 2020 note. Because he was much more than that. He was so, so valuable for the team. And it's going to break my heart if he doesn't get to finish the job with the New York Yankees. But you know, there's always going to be a soft spot, I think, in in the hearts of Yankees fans when they think of Masahiro Tanaka, even if he's pitching for the Red Sox next season or or wherever he goes. That's contingent on LeMahieu. A, a lot th- – this is this is a big one. And last year they were talking about Garrett Cole about bringing in the new guy who's going to change your team. Now it's keeping the guy who's there, who's going to – Continue the Yankees' competitive ways. And I don't know, Joe. You and I were, were talking during game two of the wild card series with Cleveland, and you just told me in that ninth inning, like, they're going to do it. They're going to find a way to win. And if my memory serves me, and it's been a long year, so pardon me if I'm mistaken, believe it, it came off the bat or, or the rally really was – Kind of initiated or catalyzed by LeMahieu. Look back to 2019, trailing Houston in game six in the ninth inning. Who hits the home run? You cannot replace that. People would sell body parts. To get that they, they really would They'd be like DJ LeMay who has I don't know signed with the Kansas City Royals for two fingers and 25 mil And three toes and a spleen Optional but like like That's, that's what it's, it's Feeling like is that and again Maybe it, not that it was a one time thing But maybe his age will Catch up with him And as I always like to say in these Situations they know What we don't know if it were that simple, Yanks would do. It. Yanks would have, after they lost Game Five of the ALDS, they would have had the contract waiting for him in, you know, as they're getting on the bus. They know what we don't know, but I gotta tell you, I I can't imagine a, a situation where the Yankees benefit from not signing DJ LeMahieu. But you know what? These aren't these. This isn't the Steinbrenner that we knew of course it's still in the family but it's it's such a different ball game now and it's strange to think about the Yankees being frugal here and and I'm gonna go to Frank Costanza in the Seinfeld finale you know how could you give 20 million dollars to Hideki Arabu you think about all the money that they've given in the past and you can't cough this up we will we will see what happens there. But oh let, let's hope the right decisions are made. Cause that would be a, a wonderful holiday gift for many Yankees fans alike. Now, on the other side, the Mets aren't looking to retain as much as they are looking to acquire. And they've been doing a lot of that. I know you keep up with the Mets. You know, from time to time, you you catch a game if it if it's on or something like that. I'm joking for anyone who doesn't know. I'm being sarcastic. Uh, Joe has been instrumental in breaking the news of Steve Cohen acquiring the New York Mets. He's had some extreme scoops, some awesome exclusives, and I got to give you a shout out for your coverage there. So take it away on what the Mets are doing this off season.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a huge transition, obviously with the. Uh, Take over of Steve Cohen and of course I really appreciate those kind words and uh, you
0: earned it man you did very
1: lucky to be in the situation that I am and of course I, I thank everybody for following along during the process um, but yeah it's so far been you know Steve Cohen living up to those expectations so far in a time where a majority of, ma- of Major League Baseball is you know reeling from those losses where you know, these teams in the league combined to lose $3 billion. Um, teams are purging talent. Teams are running on a budget. Um, teams are squeezing players. You know, it's just it's just the nature of the business, like we always say. Um, but the Mets are in this very advantageous position where they changed ownership now. Um, and Steve Cohen is by far and away the richest owner of Major League Baseball. He has the funds. Um, and he's going to bring the Mets up to that luxury tax threshold, whatever it might be, $212 million or something like that for the year. Um, and so far he's gone out and he's made deals. Um, he got a big reliever in Trevor May, um, who's been a stalwart in Minnesota for the last few years. He picked up James McCann, who is the undisputed second best catcher on the free agent market behind JT Real Muto. Um, And that was all strategy, um, because, number one, the Mets didn't want to wait to negotiate with Real Muto, because he probably won't sign until, who knows, maybe January, end of January, maybe early February. Um, He wasn't in the same place as McCann was, and because the Mets have other dire needs, including starting pitching help, and in center field, um, and maybe even another bullpen arm, they couldn't afford to wait, because... It was a huge difference. James McCann uh, signed a four-year deal worth forty point six million. Um, his average annual salary obviously is coming in just over ten million a year. If the Mets wanted J.T. Realmuto, they'd have to double that. And then with that big average annual salary, um, they'd also have to try and get a guy like George Springer to be in center field, who they've been heavily linked to over the last few weeks, and he'd be making just around that same amount. He might be making twenty to twenty-two million a year. Um, And again, by signing McCann, it also opens up the financial flexibility to continue pursuing Trevor Bauer, who, as we know, is the 2020 NL Cy Young Award winner. Didn't
0: didn't Bauer just say something about the Mets fan base, like how fiercely loyal or passionate they were too?
1: Yeah, he's been super impressed by the fan base. He actually ranked um, the top five fan bases that have been most aggressive in recruiting him. He had the Mets at number two, yeah, the Angels at number one. Adam, um, I'm interested. He is a California kid. Um, so, I, you know, in in my opinion, at least right now, I think the Mets and the Angels are the two biggest teams that are in these sweep, uh, sweepstakes. We know that uh, Artie Moreno is not, you know, not afraid to spend. And we see the Mets are maybe giving them a run for their money. So we'll see. Um, but signing the can allows them – The you know the financial flexibility for now to fit both the contracts of say a Springer and a Bauer. Um, So yeah, it's been it's been a pretty wild week uh, over the weekend by also coming to the agreement with McCann. They announced it uh, officially announced it yesterday. Um, They also hired a new general manager, Jared Porter. And it was a bit of a convoluted search. They had to abandon their initial hopes of getting a president of baseball operations and instead of just going for a general manager under team president Sandy Alderson, who then reports to Steve Cohen. Um, But they got a really talented, promising, younger baseball mind in Jared Porter, who is well-versed in analytics. Um, He cut his teeth through player development, working with the Red Sox, working with the Cubs. He won four World Series combined with them. Um, that got him an assistant GM role with the Diamondbacks. And while they're kind of an afterthought here on the East Coast, uh, the Diamondbacks really turned things around. Um, they went to a team from a team that was really at the basement of the NL West, and um, they were, uh, you know, over 500 for the last two or three years. And that's a big testament to what Porter was able to do, kind of the culture that he was able to bring in. Um, so he's obviously seeing eye to eye with Sandy Alderson and Steve Cohen now on what direction the Mets want to go in. Um, And now it's kind of wait and see. Uh, Sandy Alderson said that the market is moving slower than expected. So we might not immediately see a George Springer signing or a Trevor Bauer signing. And then I'm not limiting that to the Mets. I'm just saying in general, Um, but they are the sharks right now, the Mets and they're swirling. Uh, You know, they're, they're, they're circling the waters right now. So, Um, a very exciting time to be a Mets fan. Um, things are, things are certainly looking up and it certainly seems that other teams around the league want a piece of the Mets too. Um, I mentioned it earlier to you today before we started, uh, the Colorado Rockies apparently want the Mets to get in on the Nolan Arenado trade sweepstakes because they have the capital, uh, they have the capital to acquire most of that contract, even though there would have to be some concessions. Um, they have the players available. It's not just going to be prospects. It's going to be MLB-ready people. The Mets actually have the depth to make a deal like that happen. Um, and they're also kind of desperate because they don't want to trade him in, in the division. And we know the Dodgers have been on Nolan Aronado for years now. Um, so they're kind of waiting, too. So uh, it's really interesting that they were – you know, that this report came out and that they are – um, really wanting the Mets to get in on it because it kind of reeks of some desperation, but at the same time, it presents an opportunity for the Mets to get the best or one of the best third basemen in baseball, um, you know, on their books. Um, he signed for the next six years and they could get him at some sort of a pseudo discount on the trade market. So, it's it's a lot of moving parts right now and you kind of got you've got to keep your head on a swivel here but uh yeah it's 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 certainly uh it's certainly not boring here in Queens that's for sure
0: Now I have to ask very directly is this the New York Mets you've been waiting to see
1: Oh yeah I mean this is what the fan base has been waiting for forever Uh you know the, the Mets have never really acted like this This is a a New York team, and and they look across the river, and they see the Yankees, you know, building winners and buying what they need and trading for what else they need. And, uh, you know, you look last year, and what was a a successful offseason? It was getting a reliever. You know, it was spending, uh, you know, $10 million in free agency. Just think, by signing James McCann and Trevor May, the Mets have already doubled last year's free agency spending. Jeez. And then you're talking about potentially adding another two contracts that, you know, will put $40 million on the payroll alone in 2021. So, you know, it's about time that the team from New York acted like a team from New York and is yeah, it's in like, the biggest sports market in the world. So it's been a long time coming. But, yeah, this is what everybody has wanted from the Mets.
0: And juxtaposing that with what's going on with D.J. LeMahieu and the Yankees it feels like Freaky Friday. Absolutely, it it it's, geez, 2020. As Aaron Boone said earlier this year,
1: 2020, man, like you think you would see the day that this would happen? I I never, I never thought. Of.
0: Nothing would thrill me more than to see the New York Yankees and New York Mets competing, not just during the regular season as fierce rivals, maybe in a World Series. Love to see that again. But this this is where the – this is now where the New York Yankees and New York Mets, because we've addressed this many times, they're rivals only on a, a fan formality. They're not really rivalist teams. But now they can be. Thanks to Steve Cohen. Now they can be rivals. New York Yankees and New York Mets become rivals if D.J. LeMayhew's playing in Queens.
1: Okay. Automatically. Oh, no. That would – that would was- – Rip the hearts out of Yankees fans. And you know Mets fans will – they will hold that over Yankees fans' heads for – Yankees
0: could win 10 World Series in a row. Mets fans got you. There's no coming back from that. Yikes. No coming back from that.
1: Yeah. That, would, that would be – that would be big.
0: And, unless he has a colossal downfall, which unfortunately
1: oh, has happened
0: in the past with other
1: yeah. signings it's amazing. Yeah.
0: But really, if the Mets are stealing big names from the New York Yankees, that that's going to be a dynamic in New York baseball that has not been seen. Joe, you you are our resident baseball historian. Was that common with the Giants, Dodgers and Yankees
1: back in the day? I mean, it was it was a rivalry absolutely because you know, in the forties and fifties, this was, that was the golden age of baseball in New York. Um, you know, the the Dodgers and Yankees alone played in like seven or eight world series in, in a two decade span. Um, you know, I don't think you had as many, you know, you weren't pilfering players from each other or anything like that, but that was a real rivalry because they had so many high leverage games on the line. That was the only time they would see each other yep. back there, uh, back then. So, I mean, yeah, it's, and that's what there was, there was legit, there was hatred. There was, you know, if you were from Brooklyn and if you knew a Yankees fan, you did not, you just did not speak. You didn't associate yourself with them. Yeah. Families would not talk. Bronx
0: and Brooklyn were not buddies.
1: Exactly. Not at
0: all. And, And then you get upper Manhattan thrown into the mix, but, but still the same concept. Like, you know, it was like, you're from here, you root for this team. And and you don't see that anymore. You know, to the point that I was making about the Nets taking over with the Knicks, now the Yankees are a much more powerful global force just in the fact that compared to nineteen ninety five, the Yankees, although albeit that they may be slightly distant now, Yankees have won. Yankees have won game one titles, I should say. So maybe you'll never see that Yankees Faithful depart New York, but if the Yankees are hitting the schneid and the Mets are on the rise, you're going to have more kids growing up watching the Mets and it's inadvertent. And I'm going to go to the example of 2015. Yankees had an early exit to Houston in a, a one game wild card, which that's, that's actually where it all began for the Yankees. And I think a lot of people forget that, that they had met the Houston Astros in the playoffs before that besides the point, Yankees fans for the first time in a long time were watching the Mets in October when the Yankees were not there. And it was a surreal experience, but inadvertently the Yankees fans were watching. They were watching and paying attention to the New York Mets. I don't think too many were hate watching maybe, maybe some older ones, but you know, that, that was a dynamic change. And I think you're going to kind of see that now where if the Yankees have a bum year, there will be attention on the New York Mets. And I find that exciting. As someone who covers the Yankees, someone who watched the Yankees their entire life, I find that exciting. To know that you can't just sleep on it. Someone will steal your thunder.
1: It'll it'll be it'll be like 1969 and 1986 all over again, where, you know, I was not around for 1986, but you talk to a lot of people who were around then um, when the Mets won their world series and, you know, into the late eighties, New York was suddenly a Mets town. You know, the Yankees were not really competitive in that aspect. That was, you know, kind of their lull there. That was the
0: CBS uh, years when, you exactly. know, pre Steinbrenner before the, you know, the, the savior that Larry David would uh, later play, but.
1: Right. But that that's what, it, that's what it might be like, where if, like you said, if the Yankees do have a couple of down years, which, I do not see happening. I just – I'm sorry, I don't. The Yankees are the Yankees, and they will always be in the conversation. Just with the team that they have now. Um, Even if – God forbid the DJ LeMay who doesn't come back. They're still going to be in the thick of things. I think the AL East is still going to be open enough where, you know, they'll be in the conversation for a top-two spot. And, you know, who knows? If if 2020 was a full season, I still think I would have liked their chances to catch the Rays –
0: I'm confident they would have. And, yeah. and this is something I've said, I think I've written about it. You know, Aaron Boone deserves all the credit in the world because at some points in a sixty game season, he essentially took a triple A team to the playoffs. And yeah. and that's what you have to realize. You could say what you want about the horror 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 the horror, I feel like I'm in the heart of darkness of, of the game two pitching decision with, um, with Davey Garcia and, and Jay Happ. But you gotta, you gotta give Booney a ton of credit for him to make it there. That was on the manager. When your star calibers are out. And it's kind of like what we're talking about with Joe judge and the giants. You know, when you're playing without pieces, you need the coaching staff to step up and, I will I will give it to Aaron Boone. He he really did. And now all that's left is to finish the job. And I don't see how that happens without DJ LeMayhew. But then again, I am not paid the handsome salary of an insider in the New York Yankees organization. I just get to sit in the press box from time to time. But but really Yankees and Mets, I'm hoping to heck that this all happens at the same time. Where, even if there's not going to be a subway series every couple of years, there's that speculation where it's like it could happen. And you enter into October and, and, even after you, you come down from the rush of your own playoff game. As a Mets fan, you're like, what the Yankees do? Or vice versa. And, and the Yankees are like, geez, do, do I get a chance to go to all seven World Series games? Really? And that's an exciting part for fans. You know, how many fans maybe in San Francisco and Oakland and anyone that wants to make a drive from Chicago and or, you know, to wherever, but there aren't too many fans who get the opportunity to add a... Not a financial, but a geographic convenience. Go to all seven World Series games. That'd be pretty cool. And in a post-COVID world, that'd be a great way to welcome back New York. Sure would. That would that would be incredible. And uh, as we're coming up on uh, hour two, um, wow, Wow. yeah, Uh, exactly. (laughs) You know, uh, quickly. Joe, what's going on with hockey? Prospective mid-January start. I talked to Devils' P.K. Subban about that. He's hyped about it. He's been training for 45 weeks, his fiance Lindsey Vonn, said. They're still waiting to get married, and that's also, along with the NHL season, that's been tabled because of COVID. But we're looking at a a new division system, possibly. Gary Bettman was with some uh, people of Russian descent uh, talking about the idea of a, a January start continuing, and that was on a Tuesday or Wednesday, I believe. What do you know about this?
1: Yeah, I will keep this short. Uh, we're looking at a 56-game season. The target date is January 13th. Um, I had a source originally tell me last week um, that the Islanders were preparing to play the twenty their 2021 home games at Nassau Coliseum, which indicated the teams were going to be playing in their home venues. Um, that was confirmed uh, to a bit of a grander scale by Hockey Now's Adrian Gater yesterday. Um, and it looks like right now um, that teams will be playing in their home marines. That is subject to change, obviously. Gary Bettman did mention that today, but that's like a worst-case scenario kind of deal, where it's a lot of teams that basically aren't allowed to play in their home venues because of governmental reasons, you know, it's just their decision, depending on how um, a potential second spike could go after the holidays. Um, So it's contingent on that, but the plan is, at least for now, is they want to play these games at home arenas. It will limit the schedule, obviously, where the divisions only play, you know, each other, so the Islanders and Rangers are going to be in one division that also includes the Devils. The Flyers, the Penguins, the Capitals, the Bruins, and the Sabers—those eight teams are only going to play each other throughout the year. It limits the travel, um, especially because they're going to be playing when the vaccine isn't widespread and available for everyone. Um, so they're going to do what's necessary to have those strict protocols in place. But there is going to be a hockey season. It's going to be a little shorter. It's going to look a little different. But there will be hockey, and they got to—they got to move because it's really only well, it's less than a month away now. So, um, you know, everybody's got a quarantine, Um, you know, they have to, um, they have to get a training camp in and they also have to make the schedule. So a lot to do, but hopefully they get it done.
0: Well, we'll be talking a lot more about hockey when things start to get moving and uh, and the ice finally gets frozen again. Some points that we'll be talking about in our, our next hockey show. Definitely, what, uh, what do these circumstances mean for the Islanders and Rangers? You look at the Islanders coming off their most scorching hot season since 1993. These, this is the new dream team on Long Island. And that, that's really exciting to say. It's been a long time coming. And hopefully it's not, you know, what, 20, 25? No, no, no longer. twenty seven. 27 yeah, Anders not. Lee Anders Lee years um between conference championship runs and not that it's ever a consolation but when you lose to the team that wins it all the Tampa Bay Lightning well it's an easier pill to swallow unless of the New York Rangers New York Islanders if you're a Rangers fan of course another thing that is i I hope is able to be accomplished is playing more outdoor games for every single team. And that's something we'll talk more about. I wrote something huge on that about how it's doable. Stadiums are out there when baseball starts, just switch to the football field or, or whatever it is. There's a way to do it, especially with a condensed year. I'm sure if anyone has been driving, uh, they've reached their destination. I'm sure if anyone's been working, their day ended several hours ago. We've been at this for a while. Um, Joe, it's good to be back. It's always a pleasure. If we don't do this before, you know, happy holidays to you and your wife now. Congratulations. I have to give a shout out to that, the married man. And wishing you all the best. It's always a pleasure.
1: Likewise, have a happy and healthy and safe holiday. You and the folks, and to everybody listening out there. Uh, hopefully, this is the last holiday where we got to kind of be apart and everything can get back to normal soon. So, cheers.
0: Absolutely. Joe, take care. This has been a lengthy AM rush. If we can, I think on December 23rd, we should do a Festivus Sports special.
1: So, ready for it. Thank you as always for having me on. Always a blast with you.